So the last time we started exploring the teaching on the five aggregates, the teaching in the Satipatthana Sutta in particular, we've been going through the teaching on the foundations of mindfulness and exploring the varieties of instructions, offerings, approaches that the Buddha offers to be with our experience. And just to kind of frame that a little bit, you know, some of you have been here for the whole time, others not, so just a little bit of context here. I think the Satipatthana Sutta can be thought of in two different ways, perhaps. One as guidance instructions on what to look at, how to observe our experience, to, to aim the attention at the body to kind of be curious about what is this body and how do I get to know the elements in the body, all the various sensations and, and aiming the attention there. So it can be it can be understood as specific practices. Look at the breath, for example. Know the breath. It can be it can be thought of in that way. Likewise, in this section, the fourth foundation, each of these practices, the hindrances, the aggregates, that are offered in the each of the sections of the fourth foundation could be thought of as practices. Look for the aggregates. Look at the experience um, in this way. Look at the body, the feelings, the perceptions, kind of aiming to try to, to explore a particular aspect of experience. I've done this with the aggregates actually, in particular certain ones of the aggregates. At one point I got very curious about the perception aggregate when I was sitting a retreat in Burma with Saira Utejaniya. He was talking a lot about perception in my uh, practice meetings and so I started getting curious about it and the mind just kept looking at that, kept kind of going back to that. It was more of an intention in a way to kind of be curious about that, but it was it was like a practice for a while. And so that's one way we can pick each up of these of these sections of the Satipatthana Sutta up as a instruction, as a practice. Or we can also simply settle back as I was suggesting in the guided meditation and receive experience and then just notice how experience is being received at this moment. In a particular moment, what might be most obvious is, for instance, aversion in the mind. That that might be what is like the clearest thing when you settle back. It's like, well, what's happening? Wow, I really don't like what's going on. In a way, that can be understood as recognizing the aversion, um, the presence of aversion from the third foundation of mindfulness. That instruction of the presence or absence of aversion. Or maybe what is most obvious is the kind of the tingling aspect in the body. The sensation of kind of vibratory energy in the body that might be understood as kind of recognizing the elemental aspect of wind from the first foundation of mindfulness, the exploration of the elements. And so the, the uh, I think the way that the teachings in the fourth foundation are languaged will uh, admit either pick this up and do it as a practice or simply notice what's happening and recognize and recognizing which perspective the mind is using in this moment to recognize the experience and i'd say for something like the aggregates 
it's it's uh, until you have a sense of of what the aggregates are the teaching on the fourth foundation for the aggregates is not very instructive if you don't know what the aggregates are you know if, if it, it's just uh, you know the, the language in the fourth foundation simply says how does one abide contemplating phenomena as phenomena in terms of the five aggregates one um, understands such is material form such as it's arising such as it's passing away such as feeling such as it's arising such as it's passing away and it continues for the other three aggregates the five aggregates again we talked about this a couple of weeks ago but just again to to remind you um, material form feeling this aspect of experience pleasant unpleasant neutral perception the recognizing process of experience noticing what something is uh, identification of um, you know recognizing that's a chair that's a lamp that's a wall or that's green or that's blue or that's an orange that i'm eating or that's a bird you know that recognition aspect that's a process of our minds that's the third aggregate the fourth aggregate is a big group uh, called mental formations. That's uh, a, the whole host of emotions, thoughts are mental formations, um, mind states are mental formations. So it's a, it's a big group. It's not a kind of category that in the West we normally would put together. We would probably think of thoughts and feelings as separate things. We would probably think of an emotion uh, such as anger or confusion as different from uh, a mind state such as mindfulness. Uh, but all of those are understood to be mental formations. And the thing that they have in common is that they have an intentionality. They have a forward intentionality to them that when they uh, arise, they are kind of carrying the mind into the next moments. They are conditioning the next moments. And so the arising of anger, for instance, tends to condition the mind to respond to experience in a certain way. The arising of particular thoughts tends to condition how the mind thinks or responds. The arising of mindfulness conditions how the mind meets and responds to experience. So that's that's what they have in common. So this is this is that that aggregate. The fifth aggregate is consciousness. Uh, kind of a bare knowing, recognizing of experience. It's not re recognizing what the experience is, aside from uh, the uh, kind of rough category it's, it's in. So we have consciousness of sight, of sound, of smell, of taste, of touch, and of things going on in the mind. So the six sense bases each have their consciousness associated with them. And so the knowing quality kind of recognizes which sense space it's being, is being known, but not much else. It doesn't know, for instance, like it would just know, oh, hearing is happening, hearing. Sense space of hearing is active and, and receiving. That's what knowing knows. Knowing does not recognize either that is pleasant or unpleasant, and does not recognize that it is a bird, for instance. Uh, that's Those are the processes of feeling and perception responsible for that part. And so you can kind of see that these five aggregates, 
you don't really see one independent of the other. It's it's uh, it's very unusual, I think, to um, simply uh, experience something in terms of one of the five aggregates. Now we may we may recognize um, how a particular aggregate is functioning, but that's happening with the support of the other aggregates. And so we might recognize that perception is happening, but that's, that's happening with the support of the body, the ear that's actually being contacted. That's happening in support with the knowing, the, the mind that actually knows that hearing is happening. And yet we still can recognize the process of perception as a part of that experience. And, and that may be highlighted, but it's not that we're just seeing perception because all of the others kind of come into play as we recognize the perception aspect of experience. To me, it's kind of like looking through or, or seeing something from one side, you know, maybe like the facets of a, of a prism or something. You know, we, we can look from one side of the prism or the other side of the prism and see different things um, based on which side we're looking at. So the, um, the teaching in the Satipatthana Sutta is really simple. It just recognizes, we, or says we should recognize this is such, so such is form, such is feeling, such is perception. Just the, the kind of the simple recognition of that particular process or flavor of that of the aggregate recognizing that and then the other piece of the instructions in the satipasana sutta are recognizing the arising and passing of the aggregate that's all that the satipatthana sutta says about the aggregates so it's not terribly informative if you don't already know something about what the aggregates are and so last time uh, we met we explored a little bit more depth around uh, what the aggregates are. There's a whole host of teachings. There's one particular book in the Pali Canon called the, um, it's basically called the uh, Discourses, the Connected Discourses on the Aggregates. It's found in um, a book called the Samyutta Nikaya, which is, Samyutta basically means connected or thematic, essentially. So the thematic discourses of the Buddha and this particular collection has gathered teachings by topic. And so there's a whole section of that book on the aggregates. So there's a whole host of teachings in that book about what the aggregates are, how they work, the, the kind of the, um, uh, the main so the, the, the first part of it is what the, what the aggregates are, you know, the, the, this, is, this is what the form aggregate is. This is what the feeling aggregate is. And two different ways we talked about it last time, two different kinds of views in that are provided in the suttas. One is kind of the, um, the aggregate form, feeling, perception, consciousness as what is recognized or, or what is known in experience. So the form aggregate being physical sensation, for instance, the hardness of the body or the vibratory energy of the body. So that, that's a piece of recognizing form. Feeling defined in some places as the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral aspect of experience. 
perception as what is recognized, you know, that, that experience of recognizing something. Mental formation says the recognition or the knowing of, oh, this is anger that's arising. This is um, confusion that's arising. This is mindfulness that's arising. This is metta or love that's arising. So knowing the what of experience is one way to look at the um, understanding of the such is mental formation, such is material form, such is perception, such is feeling, such is consciousness. The other teaching, another way in or another way that the, the aggregates are described in terms of, of this, this is what the aggregates are, is rather than the what is happening, um, it's the process by which our experience is known or felt or understood. It's, they're, they're described sometimes as verbs. There's one particular teaching that describes them as activities of mind, as processes of mind, rather than as what is happening. It's the how we recognize experience. And so the, it flips it from being, you know, the, the, the aggregate being rather than, like for feeling, it flips it from being the, uh, um, the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral to the definition of the aggregate being it feels. Somebody asks the Buddha, why is it, why is it called feeling? Why is that aggregate called feeling? And the Buddha said, because it feels. What does it feel? It feels pleasant, it feels unpleasant, it feels neutral. And so the, the aggregate itself in this aspect of the teaching is defined as the activity that the process by which we know experience. So the, the how of experience. So that's, that's one set of the teachings in the, in, in the suttas around the aggregates. First of all, to get to know the aggregates. So we talked about that um, some last time. The other key teaching, and the reason why this is such a useful teaching, um, is because the uh, aggregates tend to be, and this is the Buddha's own kind of exploration or teaching, the aggregates tend to be the um, way in which the mind attributes a sense of self to experience. Clinging to the aggregates is understood to be one of the key ways we misidentify or misunderstand this sense of self. We attribute or have a view of the sense of self around these aggregates. So the, the, the many or most of the teachings around not self connect to the teachings of the aggregates. The Buddha identifies the, the, the term identity view, which is the perspective that I am, this is me or this is mine. That perspective of identity view is 
said to arise in relationship to the five aggregates. And the Buddha identified 20 different ways identity view can arise, four different ways for each of the five aggregates. So four times five, you've got 20 different ways of identity view. We're not going to do that one today. I think we might do that one next time. But um, 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 so, you know, that that identity view is um, a key way that we end up suffering. And so again, we come back to the, per the point of these practices is to help us identify, help us recognize what it is that's creating suffering in our experience. This understanding, uh, misunderstanding around self is a key way or reason that we suffer. The I am. Um, uh, now, it's not obvious necessarily, especially to someone off the street, you know, why that would be so. Why would a sense of I or me connect to suffering? So the Buddha addresses that. And that's, that's a piece that I want to, to look at today. Um, one of the teachings... Um, on the aggregates in this book, um, the connected discourses of the aggregates. This is this is the this is the second discourse the Buddha ever gave. So it's a pretty it's a pretty important one in a way. It's it's like it's a teaching that occurred apparently occurred to him early. If the story is true, I mean it's hard to know whether this is actually you know the second discourse of the Buddha or not. But um, it is said that he gave it to. Uh, like when, like he went and met his five the five companions that he had been practicing with, um, and and gave them a couple. I think it's he gave them two discourses pretty pretty close together. The first, the turning the wheel of the Dharma, which is a discourse on the four noble truths, and then this discourse on the five aggregates. Now, in giving this discourse on the five aggregates to these five people, he doesn't again. He doesn't define the aggregates there. And so it's possible that this teaching of the aggregates was more generally known at the time of the Buddha. Like he, he assumes they know this teaching. He assumes they know what the aggregates are. And so he's pointing at more clearly, he's pointing at the unreliable, the uncontrollable nature of these aggregates as being what to understand. He doesn't have to teach them about the aggregates already. And so the aggregate teaching, I don't know, that may be, that may not be a particular teaching of the Buddha. You know, it might be that that was a kind of way of understanding experience at the time of the Buddha, and he uses that teaching. So I don't know about that. Um, but in any case, uh, what he points to, to these in, in this second discourse is, um, he describes each of these five aggregates in terms of the um, kind of three basic characteristics of experience that, that he understood in himself were these three basic characteristics of experience being impermanent, unreliable, and not self, that, that this is the key misunderstanding that creates suffering. 
that when we take experience to be permanent, we tend to cling to it. And when we cling to it, it's going to disappear because it's impermanent. But the clinging to it is kind of attributing um, or hoping, let's say, for it to stay around. There's kind of the assumption of its permanence when we cling to it, thinking this is what's going to make me happy. And, and it may be that we understand in a moment, we may, be, we may understand it's not going to last forever, but when we're clinging to it, in that moment where clinging reaches out and picks it up, the clinging thinks it's going to last. That that's the movement, the clinging thinks, ah, this is what's going to do it for, for me, for the clinging. So the, the Buddha is pointing to kind of these aspects of experience that are they're, they're misunderstandings. And um, he points to the five aggregates in particular as that we misunderstand them. So um, the first thing he points to in this particular teaching, he uses the aggregates as a framework, but the first thing he points to is the uncontrollability of these aspects of experience, of these five aggregates. So for each of the five aggregates, he, he reviews, he goes through and he says, I'll read, I'll read um, one section for, for the material form, for the, the, the first aggregate. Material form is not self. If material form were self, the body would not lend itself to affliction, and it would be possible to determine of the body. Let my body be thus. Let my body not be thus. But because form is not self, the body leads to affliction. It is not possible to say, let the body be thus. Let my body not be thus. So this is pointing to the, the aspect that we don't have a kind of ultimate control over this experience of the body. And he, he says, he points to, um, you know, the affliction there, the, the suffering that comes around the body. That if, if in fact, he said, you know, if in fact the body were a sense of self. So he's, he's kind of pointing to the way in this part of the teaching, he's pointing to the way we one of the key ways we take, our, take a sense of self is I have control over something. I can say it should be like this. I can say it should be like that. And it's pretty clear of our bodies that we don't have that control. Now we can, we can in some limited ways, like I can say of my body, you know, I'm going to pick up this glass of water right now and I can do it. So there's some measure of control we have. But I can't say, you know, may this pain in my lower back disappear. I, I mean, I, I can do things to adjust so that it may not be as painful, but there's something going on there. You know, there's pressure on that nerve. I can't say of it, may that not be there. And the Buddha points to that not being some kind of flaw or mistake or problem, he says, that's just the nature of material form. The nature of material form is that it is not under the control of a self. 
This is one, one way, I think, that we tend to define a sense of self. I am the one who chooses. I am the one who decides. I am the one who acts. Now, this comes into, um, into play in our meditation practice. One of the most obvious ways this particular teaching can be seen, and I pointed to it a little bit in the, in the guided meditation, is around the coming and going of mindfulness. When we sit down to meditate, we are, have the intention to cultivate mindfulness. And what we, what we might think of as a sense of self there, I'm doing the meditation, thinks it might have some control or wants some control over whether mindfulness is present or not. And again, there is some measure of intentionality, like the intentionality of picking up the glass of water. There's a measure of intentionality that can incline the mind in a particular direction. We can remind ourselves, oh, yeah, I'm aware. I know that I'm aware, and that will tend to support further moments of awareness. And yet we can't say, may mindfulness be thus, may mindfulness not be thus. Mindfulness is a mental formation. And so the Buddha also has the same kind of pattern that he, that he used around form, around the other four aggregates. And so around mental formations, he says this. So, well, let's take mindfulness as a mental formation and put it into this form, into this, into this um, framework that the Buddha offered. Mindfulness is not self. If mindfulness were self, Mindfulness would not lead itself to lend itself to affliction, and it would be possible to determine of mindfulness, may mindfulness be thus, may mindfulness not be thus. But because mindfulness is not self, mindfulness lends itself to affliction. It is not possible to say, may my mindfulness be thus, may my mindfulness not be thus. Now, in this case, notice that the mindfulness lends itself to affliction, not because of mindfulness in and of itself, but because of the idea that I should be able to make it such. So that moment when mindfulness returns, any, any view around, oh, I, I should have like been able to stay mindful. You know, I, I, I did that wandering. You know, I should have been able to not have the mind wander. That suffering that happens with that, and that is a form of suffering. I think we're all familiar with that one. That form of suffering is because there is an attribution of mindfulness as, as self. There's the belief I should be able to control it. And the Buddha here says, you know, that's not controllable. We cannot ultimately say, May mindfulness be thus. You know, if it were that way, you know, if m mental formations in particular, had, we had that capacity around mental formations to say, they, may they be thus, may they not be thus, we would not suffer. We would switch our mental formations to be kind and um, non, not strong struggling or not tight or not angry we wouldn't we wouldn't get caught in those things we can put this for anger anger is not self if anger were self anger would not lend itself to affliction it would be possible to determine of anger may my anger be thus may my anger not be thus 
may anger not be arising right now, you know, that, that, that we could turn, turn it off. So the Buddha is pointing here to the not-self nature of experience and how suffering happens when we attribute a sense of self to something that is not self. So that's, that's, that's part of this teaching here, how the sense of self is, uh, creates suffering. It is primarily because we are attributing sense of self to something that is not self. And, and this first way of pointing to, you know, seeing this lack of controllability, it's pretty easy as we reflect actually to notice, yeah, I don't have control over the body. I can't say, yeah, may, may, may this foot not hurt or, you know, may this, may this broken leg heal instantly. We can't do that. And, and the suffering around it happens because we feel like we should be able to do that. And so right here he's pointing to, it's not your fault that you can't control these things. It's not your fault. It is the nature of the experience as not self, that it is uncontrollable. So if we're noticing the rising of mindfulness, in that moment, right there, that re-arising of mindfulness, we could explore that as essentially, you know, evidence for not self. It is evidence for not self, you know. You didn't decide to make the mind wander in the first place, you know, so that was, that was not under your control. So right there, that's, that's evidence for not self. And the re-arising of mindfulness, you know, who did that? You know, that just happened. So the, the, that too is evidence for not self. So instead of beating ourselves up for, I didn't keep my mind mindful, noticing it in that moment of mindfulness returning. Oh, this is not self right here. This is not self. So that's the first part of this teaching that he offered to these five companions, looking at the controllability. And then he goes on to point out um, about each of these five aggregates that they are impermanent. And this is, in a way, it's a flavor. It's connected, these, these, um, these three impermanent, unreliable, not self are connected. They're very interrelated. So this first one was, he's just directly saying, this is not self. The aggregates are not self. And one of the most direct ways into understanding that is the uncontrollable nature of those aggregates. Because we do have a sense, you know, the I thinks it can control things. That's a very fundamental way that, that we identify as I or me. I choose, I act, I make decisions, I make things happen. So that's a very fundamental way that we identify. There's some subtler ways that we identify um, more as being, uh, I talked about this briefly, maybe I didn't talk about it in the, I don't remember if I talked about it in this session or afterwards. Um, there's um, you know kind of an identification of I am the doer. I 
I act, I engage. And that's more obvious kind of form of, of sense of self. But then there's another kind of experience of self that we can recognize, yeah, I'm not in charge. Seems pretty clear, yeah, I'm not, yeah, mindfulness is arising and I'm not doing that. But it sure feels like it's happening to me. That's another flavor of the sense of self. I can see I'm not doing it, but who's it happening to if it's not happening to me? So that's that's a, a kind of a deeper flavor of not of of the sense of self, the clinging to self, that it's it's happening to me. I'm being impinged on this hapless being that things happen to, you know, and there can be some suffering around that again because the sense of uncontrollability, vulnerability, and a relationship to that of it's not okay to just have things impinge on me. That's not okay. So there can be suffering there. And so the Buddha points to um, recognizing more deeply the impermanent nature of experience, the impermanent nature of each of the aggregates. And so he points to that, asks his five companions, so is, is material form, is it permanent or impermanent? This group of, of um, five had looked at their aggregates. They knew them well enough that they recognized, well, yes, material form is impermanent. Even what is understood, even what seemingly is permanent, you know, like the ground that we stand on, you know, the land, the earth that we stand on. You know, we know through um, reflection and through uh, observation that, you know, it gets carried away by by um, by rains and water and you know earthquakes happen and you know so it's not always the same it's in process it's it's a flow it's a flux there's a continual change around material form and likewise with feeling I think material form is the one where it may be hardest to see the impermanent nature. Now, we can recognize, you know, the impermanent nature of our body in terms of the um, the way we change as we age and, you know, our hair changes color and our face gets wrinkles and things like that. So we can we can notice that. We know that our bodies will decay and die and some of the teachings in the First Foundation are directly pointing to this, you know, noticing you know, this this body too is subject to aging, illness, and death. It too is going to be in the charnel ground. It is going to turn into rotting flesh and bones and bones scattered here and there. And just that reflection is pointing directly to this impermanent nature of form, of material form. Clinging to that this material form is not impermanent, you know, clinging to the kind of permanent nature, the kind of belief, the view. And we have this view, even though we know, even though we know we are going to die, we do not act that way. And it somehow, it seems to take us by surprise, you know, if, you know, gee, you know, oh, I'm, I'm you know, sometimes we get the, the intimation of our mortality and it's a little bit shocking it's like oh yeah if i had turned just a little bit faster there 
I would have been hit by that car and I might be dead. You know, we get intimations of that and it, it can be shocking to see, yes, this being is not permanent. So the, um, the Buddha encourages us to recognize the impermanent nature of these five aggregates of material form, of feeling. Feeling is more easy, I think, to see its impermanent nature, the fluidity with which pleasant, unpleasant, neutral comes and goes. Mental formations, the, the arising of moods and emotions and mind states and thoughts, that too, very fleeting at times. Perceptions come and go. So the, the mental realm, in a way, it's, it can be, if we're looking, if we're curious, if we're noticing the actual experience, it's easier to notice the impermanent nature of those. The knowing of something comes and goes. So in terms of exploring the impermanent nature, then the Buddha points to, is what is impermanent, something that is reliable as a place for lasting happiness. And that's obviously, no, you know, something that is going to disappear is not a place that one can land as a place for reliable happiness. And so the, the Buddha in this teaching is really pointing to the misunderstandings we have around the aggregates. He's pointing to, we tend to take, we tend to assume controllability, we tend to assume permanence, we tend to assume um, reliability. And in all of that, we are assuming a sense of self. So for these five, uh, for these five, this teaching was enlightening. It, uh, it, it broke them all through to some level of freedom. I think, I think actually all five of them became fully awakened after this discourse. So there was obviously a lot of practice, obviously a lot of understanding. It was just this, this, this kind of the linchpin of believing the controllability, the permanence, just in a subtle way, believing that that got shaken up for them by this discourse. Those, those beliefs exposed and released. When those beliefs no longer happen, the belief that things are permanent, if we understand deeply that something is impermanent, we do not cling to it. It just doesn't make any sense. And so there's a kind of a subtle way that our minds go about keeping on clinging to things. So this discourse helped them to let that go. So the, to come back to the Satipatthana Sutta, the key instruction in the Satipatthana Sutta is to notice the impermanent nature of the aggregates. This is, elsewhere in the Sutta, the, the Buddha encourages, and I think this teaching is given to his own son, his own son, um, Rahula. At some point, I think he's a teenager or maybe a little bit older, he gives his son this instruction. He says, cultivate the perception of impermanence. Because with the perception of it, with, with the perception of impermanence, the conceit I am has no traction. It won't arise. And so uh, connecting again this understanding of the impermanent nature of experience with the uh, kind of the view 
of I am. It's a the I am is a belief. It, there's a you know there's a, a subtle um, kind of view underlying experience, and so the 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 view the belief there can't arise when the when the um, understanding of impermanence is very thorough. And so the Satipatthana Sutta is pointing directly to that as the instruction around the aggregates. Notice the impermanent nature of the aggregates. Notice the arising and passing of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. <laughs>